Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technology is the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalias. So good evening to you all. Delighted to be here. Another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicking off this hour. And we have a super exciting show coming up for you tonight. There has, I have been playing with something since the, about the, about the Christmas, around Christmas. I started playing with high resolution audio and the idea was, could, is high resolution audio a legitimate thing? Is CD quality enough? Is 41.1 kilohertz sampled at 16 bits? Is that enough? Because since the thirties, Henry Nyquist has come up with a theory that says that it is. And I'm not trying to prove Henry Nyquist wrong today. I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think that there are some considerations that haven't been taken into effect. And so as we kick off this hour of the Ask Noah show, we're going to ask those difficult questions. And as we do on this show, we find the leading industry experts and we bring them on this program to explain to you and to discuss with you what you know, what the answers to these questions are. And so joining us later in the program, we're going to bring back Bob Carver, owner of Sun, well, previous owner of Sunfire, previous owner of the Carver Corporation. If you're not familiar with Bob Carver, you can do a quick Google search. We talked about him last time he was on the show. Bob has spent his, his life researching and understanding and learning about audio. And um, he's become an industry expert. If you care about high fidelity audio you know who bob carver is you probably attend one of his fests uh, carver fest and also joining me for the first time on the ask noah show is my dad dr chalai hey dad welcome to the ask noah show uh, good evening noah i'm glad to be here so i, I have to ask you h- how is it that we screwed how is it that we've gone 45 episodes and you haven't joined me on the air for a program yet because I think this is your show, and oh. you're the expert, and I figured oh. my area of expertise is in different area, medicine, uh. health, and uh, high fidelity, not uh, radio. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I mean we talk uh, technology. About, yeah, IP computers. Technologies. Yeah, computers. Techn- yeah, we talk about computers a lot on the show. <clears throat> but yeah, no, so uh, so anyway, so welcome to the Ask Noah Show. It's great having you. So I guess uh, to start, what we're going to do, and again, phone lines are open, one 855 That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. So the first thing I want to do is I want to start out and just give you guys a basic understanding of the technology and the terms we're going to be talking about this evening, because as we progress through this show and as at when we get Bob on the line and when we bring Dr. Chalaya back and we start asking some of these questions, you have to understand the vernacular. You have to understand the terminology in order for you know this to really mean something. And so the, the best thing to do or the, it seems like the first step is to go through and just explain some of this. Uh, now, if you're the kind of person that goes to Amazon.com and you buy some MP3s and you stream it over a wireless protocol that was originally designed to connect your computer peripherals to your desktop, then then this may be a little down in the weeds for you, if I'm being honest with you. But if you can stay, stay with me, because as always, your calls are the priority. So we will stop and break for calls as they come in. Now, we're going to be talking about high-resolution audio. And we'll go just deep enough that you guys can have a solid understanding of what digital audio, essentially, our ears are analog devices. And sound is an analog concept. And so anytime we try to convert the music that we hear, the sounds that we enjoy, into ones and zeros, it's a process of compromise. Now, there's a reason that you don't find any high-resolution recordings of Taylor Swift, any high-resolution recordings of Deadmau5. The recordings that you can purchase are recordings that have been digitally recorded from their analog masters. Now, I'm a huge fan of, you know, like the Ampax ATR-124 or the Studio 
A800. And if you want to ensure that you lose nothing, you don't have to look any further than a really high-end reel-to-reel. But digital, over the years, has many advantages that its analog counterparts don't, mainly the ability to edit and distribute so much easier than analog. So it's, it is necessary and it is beneficial to convert analog sounds to ones and zeros. It's necessary to take some of those compromises because at the end of the day, the benefits outweigh the compromises. But if we're talk, anytime we talk about converting analog sound to digital sounds, we are, uh, we are talking about a compromise process. Now, there are two things that we concern ourselves with anytime we convert analog sound to digital sound. Those two things are the sample rate and the bit depth. Now, let's take a look at a typical audio wave. Now, this is just a screen cap I took out of Audacity. We can see that it peaks up and downs. Those represent the amplitude of the wave and how often the wave occurs, how, often they, uh, the, how, how many of cycles there are. That's what's known as the frequency of the wave. So when we talk about a sample rate, we're literally just saying, how often are we taking a measurement of this waveform? And so if we took the measurement 10 times in a second, then the sample rate would be 10 hertz. If we take the sample 1,000 times in a second, then the sample rate would be 1 kilohertz or 1,000 hertz. And if we take the sample 44,000 times in a second, the sample rate would be 44 kilohertz. Now, the second thing we're interested in is the bit depth and the bit depth is quite simply how much information we are taking every time we take a measurement. And so imagine, if you will, that you had a ruler with 44,000 lines on it. In other words, you had the ability to measure something in increments of 44,000. If the bit depth is 16, then you'll be able to gather 16 bits of information every time you take a measurement of those 44,000 times in a given second. So the sample rate is how often the bit depth is how much. That's, it's basically that simple. Well, that begs that makes the question, how often do we want to sample something and how much information should we gather every time we take a sample? And for that, to, we look to something called the Nyquist theorem. And the Nyquist theorem basically states in order to acu- accurately reproduce a digital signal from its analog counterpart, it needs to be periodically sampled at a rate that is twice the highest frequency you wish to record. Well, Noah, what is the highest frequency that we wish to record? And for that, we look no further than the human ear. The human ear can hear 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, also known as 20 kilohertz. Now, if we apply the Nyquist theorem here and say that the highest frequency we would ever want to sample is 20 kilohertz, then that's the highest frequency our ears can hear and that's the sample that we would want some we want to sample somewhere above 40 kilohertz because it's a 20 times 2 40 40 kilohertz and thus we sample at 44.1 kilohertz and yes before anyone writes me hate mail i am fully aware of the sony f1 but that's not it's not pertinent to this discussion so we're just going to say that we'll just leave it at the sample rate has to exceed twice the available the, twice the highest frequency that you want to capture now all commercial cd's are mastered at a bit depth of 16 bits with a sample rate of 44.1 kilohertz. A bit depth of 16 gives us 96 decibels of dynamic range, which is enough for everything we want to capture. And this is where I have to start asking questions. Or is it? Because if you think about a drum set, for example, the dynamic difference between a wooden stick tapping a side stick against the rim of a snare drum and now think about an 18-inch A, you know, A Zildjian crash and the swell of that. How much louder is that crash going to be than the, the click of, of, of the stick? And is the difference between those two greater than 96 decibels? And if we're going to ask that question, then we have to ask, is 44.1 kilohertz frequent enough of a sampling rate? So if we go back to our ruler example, for argument's sake, let's just say instead of 44,000 lines, we had 2 million 822,400 lines. Obviously, we'd get a much finer measurement. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about measurements and, and how accurate they, they are. You, uh, you, if we have such a high uh, concentration of measurements, if we take them very, very often, uh, we only need one bit depth because the waveform can't change that much in one, you know, two millionth, eight hundred twenty-two thousandth, four hundredth of a second. And this is how we arrive at high resolution audio because high resolution audio, and it can be traditionally FLAC or 
wave or something we're going to be talking about called DSD, also known as digital stream digital, or I'm sorry, a direct stream digital. And uh, I want to bring Dr. Chalaya uh, up here. Let's see. Are you still with me? Yes, I'm here. <clears throat> no, I'm here. Okay. Yes. So I, I want to get your take. So you and I were talking the other night about this and, um, you know, you were saying w- one of the, one of the, you were, you were, you were giving can me math. Yeah, I, yeah, please. Can I add a little bit of an explanation that might help some of the listeners? You see, um, if you're measuring a length of a string or a piece of uh, a, a small little pin, for example, length of a pin, if you use a uh, ruler with just 10 divisions uh, and the uh, needle comes between two divisions, then you have to approximate. You see, you have to take right. it to the... And that is the problem with uh, not having an accurate scale. Suppose if you have a lot, lot more, many divisions, you can do. Now, this is what gets you when you have uh, the bit depth, when you say 16 bits, the more bits you have, you know, you can have uh, more, what do you call, uh, it's like a scale with my, my smaller divisions. Right. And also, it gives you the dynamic range you talked about. So I yeah. just want to just add my two pieces in there. Okay. Yeah, and, so, and so give me the math that you were talking about the other night. We were talking about this, and you were saying, if you take a, if you, if you just disregard the bit depth for a second, just talk about sample rate. If you take a 20, you were given math on how many times you're going to, how many times you're going to sample okay. a given cycle. Okay, let's take an example of the highest frequency, 20 kilohertz, okay? So let's take a sine wave. So it goes up, down, and below, and up again. So you have, if you're sampling at a rate of only 40 kilohertz, you get only two samples, one up and one down, okay? Mm -hmm. Therefore, um, now, theoretically speaking, there are other problems, um, I'm sure other ideas uh, Bob will uh, address. But theoretically, since you have only two points of reference, you don't know whether this wave is a sine wave or a, a, a triangular wave right. or square a rectangular wave. A square yeah. wave. You yeah. have no way of knowing that. Okay? Right. Uh, but of course, they do some really sophisticated computer algorithm to try and figure this out. For example, we know that the highest frequency we can hear is only 20 kilohertz. We don't need to hear anything higher than that. So what they do, one of the tricks they use in digital audio is have a very, very strong brick wall filter. In other words, they filter everything about 20, 22, 22 kilohertz. Right. Which means, and you know, a Fourier analysis. A Fourier was a French mathematician who said that all waveforms, all waveforms, even complex waveforms are nothing but a sine wave and a series of it's a harmonic sine wave like right. you know 100 200 300 and so working backwards a square wave is nothing but a sine wave plus a whole bunch of extra uh you know multiples like right. two, uh, twice two times three times four times and so on so they're saying the computer technology people the audio people are saying well okay my problem is I only have two reference points. I don't know whether it's a sine wave or a rectangle. Right, wave and, we're, and a- we're forcing, yeah, we're, we're forcing the computer to guess. And, and we'll uh, let's let's we'll dive into the uh, to the to the nitty gritty on on sampling and filters and stuff. I do want to get to that because I think that's an important part of the discussion. But I want to go back and just I want to touch on flack for just a second. If you haven't heard of flack. Uh, uh, first, a disclaimer and a reminder that in the digital world, there's no such thing as a truly lossless format because everything we're sampling, even if we're sampling at 2.8 million times in a second, there's, you know, our ears are listening constantly. And so that's 2.8 million is still not constant. Uh, so but with, with that said, when we refer to a lossless Kodak, what we're saying is that nothing that the human ear is scientifically capable of detecting is lost. And so FLAC is a lossless format, meaning that none of the data from the source recording is compressed or removed, assuming that you use the same bit depth and frequency range. But FLAC, uh, unlike WAVE, and WAVE is another lossless format, FLAC is technically superior for a couple of reasons. The first is FLAC does everything that WAVE does in terms of lossless audio, but in smaller packages. WAVE is an insanely inefficient way to encode audio. The second thing that FLAC does very, very well is it has more tagging capabilities, which makes it, which, which Windows, by the way, doesn't respect. And so if you're going to choose a format for archiving or, or you know, and you want more tags and, and less space, then go with FLAC every time. 
And we can use FLAC to store audio at high resolution. That's kind of what we're talking about today is can we store audio in the best possible format? And FLAC is capable of of storing audio in 24-bit 96 kilohertz, which is obviously, if you're paying attention, we've gone from 16 bits to 24, and we've gone from 44 to 96, and you can actually go all the way up to, to 196. You know, with with most of them. Um, And so if 16 bits can do 96 decibels of dynamic range, then 24 bits can do 144 decibels of dynamic range. And again, I've got some questions for Bob Carver when when we get to him. But there is a, a new format, and this is the one that I have personally been playing with, and it's called DSD. And what DSD is, Direct Stream Digital, is... Basically, we take just one bit. It's very shallow bit depth, but we sample at an insanely high rate. So we sample at 2.8 megahertz, 2.8. So that's that's 2,800 kilohertz for reference. Um, And 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 that the first time I listened to DSD audio, you guys, it was it just it blew my mind. It was so fantastic. And I've got a graph up here that shows the, the difference. If, you, if you're not watching the show on, uh, on, on visual playback, then you know, maybe head over to YouTube and check out uh, this particular graph because it's really, I think it, 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 it exemplifies the difference between DSD and wave audio. But DSD just brings it home for me. And that, that really is what struck off this entire conversation. And later on in the conversation, we're going to talk about how you can get this working on Linux, what equipment do you need to do all of this, all that coming up later on the show, plus the interview with Bob Carver. Again, phone lines are open. one 450 noaa That's 855-450-6624. Hey, Dad, you want to take some calls with me? Sure. Great. We'll start with Jeff. Jeff is calling from Ohio. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Uh, how are you doing today? Excellent. How can we help? Well, um, I work in an IT company, and they miss, they sent out a communication um, last week, two weeks ago, about if you have AMD and Intel chips, you must think about upgrading your processor mm. with meltdown. Mm. Now, me being an IT guy, like I am, I know Meltdown was only for Intel and Spectre. Number one. Number two, upgrading your chip isn't going to fix anything. There is no hardware fix available yet. Yeah, that, that's that's the one thing I thought. Mm-hmm. But I've made a reply, and I said, well, you're, you're basically saying that both of these chips are affected by the same thing, which it's not. And number two, you, you've got to break it down to what you're talking about, because there might be some people who don't know a thing about chips. They right. might think that their CPU is their GPU. And if you sit there and you continue to say, well, you need to update your chips or mm-hmm. update the kernel chips or updates, whatever, what, what, what do you think people are going to think? Well, oh, my God, i got to rip out my processor and put a new processor in it. Right. Which and not only are we not even if you ripped out your processor today, not only is that not going to solve the problem. If you rip out your processor a year from now or two years from now, it still might not solve the problem because we are going to be living with this particular vulnerability for the next couple of years, uh, for the next couple of, of cycles of 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 Intel processors. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, even AMD processors with Spectra because right. it's it's harder to 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 get to and to actually to use the vulnerability. Right. Well, it has to be done. There's a lot of people who don't understand. Yeah. Well, it has to be done in software. So. Yeah. But see, that's what I'm saying. A lot of people don't understand the difference between what is actually happening with Meltdown and what is actually happening as happening with Spectre. Yeah. They they lump. If you have AMD and Intel, you're affected by Meltdown. Or if you have AMD and Intel, you're affected by Spectre. They need to differentiate. Yes. What, 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 what. Yes, I agree. How how would you go about? Well, I I what I what I do for the very non-technical folks is uh, and I mean really non-technical. So I don't know if I would go into my boss's office if I was working, you know, if I worked for an IT firm and I would use this analogy, but if I'm using very non-technical folks, I ask a question where I know they're where I can predict to with a relative degree of certainty what the answer in their head is going to be and then I use that as an example of saying because I can guess that if 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 I ask, uh, you know, if we if for instance if we just ate lunch and I say, "Are you hungry?" 
And I can say, now, my my prediction is that you're going to say no. And they say, yeah, of course, it's no. I say, okay. And then I use that as a, as a segue to say, okay, this is how the processor does these things. And let's just pretend that the area in your brain where you said no was unsecured. And let's also pretend that sometimes instead of just thinking yes or no, you think about your passwords and I could steal those. And and, and so and that, that, that analogy works really, really well because you set it up in such a way where you say, I have to have physical access. I have to be sitting in front of you. I can't read your mind from you know, across the, at least that we know of across the world or whatever. And also there would be no log of me reading your mind. So we don't know if this attack has ever been used. Cause that, that's one thing that gets missed in the discussion about Spectre and, um, and, and meltdown, right? Is that it doesn't leave any traces. So everyone's going around saying, Oh, this isn't a big right. deal. We don't have any record of it happening. Well, yeah, because there's no log in the file, you know? So, so that, that's what I do. But I, I tell you what, I will do you one better, Jeff. If you'd like, if you think it would help you, I would love to put together like a little two minute video and we put it up on our YouTube channel. And I, if, if you want, I can put you back on hold, have Sarah pick up. She can take your call details and we can get that. Uh, we could get you a link and you could just take that video and say, here, here is, here are some people that this what they do, you know, day in and day out is they explain technology. Here's an explanation for you of what the, you know, oh, just that would be wonderful. Great. I'll go ahead and put you back on hold, Jeff, and Sarah will pick up and we'll uh, we'll get that video produced uh, sometime later this week and we'll get a link out for you. You can get that to your boss. Uh, Max is calling. Uh, hey, Max uh, from Indianapolis. Hey, or I didn't click on the thing. Hey, Max, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah, thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. How can we help? Uh, yeah, I have some questions about lighting controls. I understand you met, you install those at AltaSpeed, and I'm wondering what products you use to automate lighting. Sure. So we use a product. Uh, we use a, a combination of products. We use a combination of products from a lighting control company called Lutron, who makes the light switches, and we use a, a, a automation systems from a company called Crestron, which makes control systems. And the nice thing is, uh, you can tie those lighting control systems into the automation system and then the automation system can tie to a bunch of other systems so you can tie it to security systems you can tie it to a smartphone you can tie it to uh i was talking with uh, chris the other night about my the way i have my home automated uh from an audio standpoint and one of the things that we believe strongly at altaspeed technologies is when we install a piece of technology into your home especially if it costs a lot of money we want that piece of technology to last 15 20 25 30 years and so what you find with a lot of these newer modern smart switches, so to speak, is they rely on an API and they rely on a service. And if the Logitech Harmony is any example, those want that. Yeah, right. Those things can go bad. And the, the the problem that everyone overlooks, and nobody ever has a good answer. Like when when I have this discussion with other people, they always they never have an answer for me here. The it, no, there, there are people that have the money and are willing to put smart light switches that are API-based, service-based in their house one time. They'll spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to do that once. The problem is when they become well, outdated. Sorry, can I interject? Yeah. Because uh, so I'm rewiring my entire house. Right. It's all opened up. Yeah. So I'm going to be using. I'm going to be using. All, I'm an electrician by trade. So oh, okay. I'm going to have this completely rewired. So I'm not going to rely on wireless controls at all. Let me let me give you let me give you let me give you a product to look into. Look into the Lutron Radio Raw system. It, it, it now it is wireless. I, I'll give you that disclaimer. However, it is extremely robust and refined wireless. It's not the wireless like I push a button and then I hope the radio signal gets here or there. And it's specifically made designed for electricians and ele- electrical companies to install from an automation standpoint. So all of their training systems, uh, all of the documentation is all written from an electrician's point of view. I think it'd be a really great, uh, a really great uh, standpoint. Radio Raw Two from Lutron. It's a really fantastic product. Very, very high end. Uh, you, you see them a lot in half million dollar, million dollar, two million dollar houses. Um, it, you know, and you'll spend a little bit of money. But it, again, it's one of those systems that it's a completely close. It's a completely integrated system, and yet it doesn't rely on anything other than you. You take the piece of software, you program the the light switches and the control mechanism and how you want the buttons to work and what you want the lights to do, and then you can tie anything into that. And it's not to say that you can't use smartphone apps or tie it to Alexa or all of those things. You can do all of those things. It just means that if any of those APIs ever break... Button controls that are low voltage. Yes. Exactly. And, 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 and all of the things within the Radio Raw 2 system itself 
talk it only with their own th- with their own language. So even if those APIs break, even if the services break, your light switches still work. Your home automation system is not broken. It the the core infrastructure that you put into your house is solid. It's local. It's yours. You own it. You, it'll work for twenty five years, fifty years, no problem. It just has the flexibility if you want to tie into other things. You can. Yeah. Have, and I know you've mentioned Home Assistant on the show. Have right. you looked into Node Red? Have you used Node Red? No, but I'm uh, making a note of it right now, and I'd, I'd love to look into that. Node Red. Yeah, it, it, I've been playing with that a little bit and some Arduino boards to do some controls and things. And uh, it actually comes pre-installed on, on Debian, on Raspbian, I think, um, on a Raspberry Pi. I'm running it off the Raspberry Pi 3 right now. Sure. Um, and it's really sophisticated. It's, it's actually put out by IBM. Oh, okay. And, uh, it's a platform that's written in Java or Node.js, I believe. And uh, you, can, you can integrate any control and the logic with it. It has logic flows. Um, so it's, it's, it's an incredibly sophisticated platform, but simple at the same time. Yeah. Because it, a, a, it has a visual... Uh, or it has a it has a GUI on it that that uh, it serves up as a web page, a lo- local web page, and you log in, and you click into that web page, and you can uh, have all your control flows go through that. So I'd like something that could integrate with that because I want to have proximity sensors in the house that can control yes. the lighting on and off and right. all this and and, uh, and and be able to do it that way. But a lot of these platforms, I, I use Lutron products all the time, but. I, they're expensive. Yes. Uh, you know, these, these lighting panels, these control panels are, are quite pricey. And I'm looking if I can find maybe a more open source or DIY uh, platform. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, honestly, Max, my, my answer to you is that you to a, lo- a large degree, you get what you pay for. And, and what you're talking about, you and I look at automation. I can tell just from talking to you for five minutes, you and I look at automation very similarly. So a lot of people say, oh, I just love the fact that I can sit on my bed and tell Alexa. To, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't mean to keep saying, I know I'm setting everyone's thing up. I'm sorry. They, tell the woman in the box that you, that to turn the lights off and then that happens. That's really convenient. My thought is the box should know when I want the lights to come on and when I want the lights to come off. When I haven't been in the room for, for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, the box should know that and it should automatically shut the lights off. And when I walk into a room, there's never a time in my life during nighttime hours where I want to stand in a room in complete darkness and not be able to see anything. That just that doesn't exist except my bedroom uh, because I sleep in there. But other than that, I, I want if, there, if I'm in a room, I want the lights on. And so we have put motion detectors strategically in our house. So there is no place in the house that you can get to other than the bedroom where you where by the time you even get to the room, the light isn't on. And in fact, it's 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 comical. My mother. She she always says, oh, you leave all the lights in your house. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. The lights are only on anytime you're in the room. They just come on because they know you're about to enter the room. And then when you're gone for 10 minutes, then they shut it back off. She goes, no, I, I've never seen the lights off in any of the rooms. I'm like, I know. That's the point. It's very efficient. <laughs> so I like it. That's the kind of home motivation I'm into. Wendy is calling from Idaho. Hey, well, Wendy, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello. I've got a couple image questions for you. Okay, shoot. So I'm um, in this photography class, and we're talking about delivering images to, like, a magazine. So the images would need to be delivered in CMYK format. Okay, yep. And we'd have to adjust for dot gain. So the problem is I use, I'm using Linux for all of my image workflow. Darktable doesn't handle that. I'm not very comfortable in raw therapy because I've spent most of my time in Darktable. Sure. Supposedly, there is an extension for GIMP, but it seems like that's no longer supported, and I'm getting a little (laughs) frustrated. Yeah, I bet. Uh, So for anyone that doesn't understand uh, uh, what Wendy's question is, what she's saying is that when you you are going to go send a professional image off to a company that's going to use it for a professional purpose, they want that image in the highest quality possible, and they... We, we divide and we separate and we identify color spaces in different ways. And so you said you're using CYMK? Yeah, that is what um, a magazine would need. Yep, okay, that makes sense. And, that color profile. And so here's here is the here is the here is the answer. The answer is I don't know exactly how to do that uh, in in those softwares. However, I know who does. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to put you back on hold, and I'm going to see if I can get if, if I'm going to see if I can get him on the show right now. If I can get him to call in or something like that. Uh, let's see here. And if I can, I'll have him answer it for you. If not, what we'll do is I will I'll, I'll take down your uh, your information and I'll I'll get back to you. Uh, you a second. 
to come on the program. Uh, so we'll see if I can get him on and we'll answer that question for you. If not, like I said, I will we'll get back to you. Uh, DJ is calling from, I believe, Washington, D.C. Hey, DJ, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Great to talk to you. Hey, same, sir. How can we help? A long time listener, first time caller. Hear you since episode one. Uh, I had a follow up question about the uh, episode 43. Someone was calling in, I think it was Architect, talking about uh, Toy Box versus Busy Box. Yes. I just, just wanted to set the record straight that. Uh, Toybox actually isn't is no longer BSD licensed. So I mean, a lot of stuff you were saying about it is actually accurate. But like in general, BSD license is not like a total disclaimer of of copyright. Just just wanted to put that out there. Uh, and that I mean, it's, it still has an attribution requirement and all that. So just kind of a follow up on open source licensing. Uh, other than that, I mean, if, if you had any questions, I might be able to answer some if, if there's any confusion. Okay, but I, I would otherwise just say, uh, yeah. Off the top of my head, I don't, I don't have anything. But uh, yeah, it's uh, thanks for the clarification. I appreciate it. It's one of those things where, and again, you know, we could have a whole discussion on on licensing and the and the the, the benefits and 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 detractors uh, from you know from having a you know from, from having a, a license with like literally no restrictions. Scott is calling. Hey, Scott, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How are you today? Excellent. How can we help? Well, first off, I just wanted to say, uh, your caller two callers ago, Wendy, she was uh, saying she was confused by raw therapy. I was confused by it, too, when I tried to open it in the GUI, but the uh, command line interface is much, much easier. Okay. So maybe she could try that. Yeah, let's do that. And I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Wendy. I'm going to go ahead and bring Wendy back up here. And I'm also going to bring up our mumble room. Hey, mumble guys. How are you? Hey. Doing great, man. Hey, I wanted to. I wanted to pick. Uh, I was Hello. hoping. I was hoping Michael was in here, and I was hoping Michael. Uh, Wendy, could you repeat your question for Michael? Um. So I need to be able to convert an image into CMYK format and be able to adjust dot gain before sending it off mm. to a a magazine client. So Who? it's not something that I have to do now but it's something that I need to be able to figure out before that is necessary. Who has an answer for yeah, Wendy? I've never done either of those things. There's a CMYK. There's a plugin for GIMP that you can install the plugin and it will allow you to convert something to CMYK. You can also use the I've dev seen mode it online, of but I haven't been able to get a hold of it. The, the easiest thing to do is probably using the dev mode because if you get, if you get the dev mode version of GIMP, it's, uh, it's already built in. The CMYK is built into it. So if it's just that one purpose, you could you could use that. You could also try out uh, Krita because Krita has CMYK support. So that that was going to be my suggestion. I just didn't know enough about it, it, it before. But but Krita is what you are slowly moving to, right, Michael? In certain cases, yes. As far as like uh, creating art, right. I, I use Krita for that. Does that answer your question, Wendy? Yeah, I think so. I'll go ahead and. Look those up and give that a try, and hopefully I'll be able to make those changes. Okay, and if that doesn't work, when you give me a call back, we're here every Tuesday. one eight five five four five zero six six two four is the number. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Give me a call. Become a part of the program. Coming up, Mr. Bob Carver uh, from, well, formerly Sunfire, formerly, Sunf- uh, so formerly uh, Carver Corporation. Welcome back to the program, Bob. Well... I'm, I feel welcome. Thank you. Well, well, good. So, and we also we have Dr. Chalai here too, don't we? Yes, I'm here, Bob. Bob, how are you? How are you guys? You've taught me everything I know about audio, Bob. <laughs> I doubt that. Well, all right, all right. So let's let's dig into this a little bit. So, okay, so Bob, we're talking about high resolution audio, and the question has been posed to us: Is this snake oil, or is this a legitimate thing for, for people to enjoy audio? And before I get to any of those questions, before we even talk about it, I just want to get this out on the table because I know this is one thing all three of us are going to agree on. If there's somebody listening to the program right now and they say, "I want to enjoy music," that's what I want to do. I want to sit down, I want to relax, and I want to enjoy music. What is the what what do they need a five thousand dollar hi fi audio system with a DAC and and three hundred dollar or or thirty thousand dollar stacks headphones or or CRM two cinema ribbons? They need any of that to enjoy music? No, of course not. No, uh, but a, 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 a nice high resolution high fidelity system 
uh, there's nothing quite like it. It immerses us in music. Uh, we feel it. We experience it. And it's a, just a delightful uh, thing to have in one's home and to enjoy. Sure. It's just... So the, Yes and no is the answer. So I, I just want to make that clear because I, I think we're all going to agree if, if what you have access to is a couple of MP3s and some and some twenty dollar headphones if that's what if that's what you can enjoy music on anything and you can start training your ears to recognize high quality low quality take a CD is going to be vastly superior to even the MP3s you buy on Amazon so you can start you don't have to have it doesn't cost a lot of money to get started enjoying high high fidelity audio that's the first thing I want to say so so Bob so basically what what I wanted to ask you and what I wanted to get your take too on Dr. July is I want to talk about digital filtering because digital filtering is improving but it's not cheap and it's not perfect and so we can yes we can band limit a signal to 20 kilohertz during recording uh, without, fil- but we can't do that without the filtering producing some sort of artifacts. And the same is true with band reconstruction filters needed at playback. Those, we could, because if you think about it, so for, for anyone that's following this discussion, we talked about what a bitrate is. We talked about you know what frequency is stuff like that. If if we need to use a filter, we need to attenuate that signal down 96 dBs, which leaves us a playroom of 2.04 kilohertz at 16 uh, bit depths of resolution because we have 44, we sample at 44.1 kilohertz and we have to have 40 kilohertz to have a 20 kilohertz band limited signal. If everyone's with me so far. So we've got two kilohertz, we've got two kilohertz to play with basically. Well, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's the leftover bandwidth. That's, uh, that gives us a little, uh, uh, extra room. Mm -hmm. Um, but remember, in, in music, in normal music, the signal at 20 kilohertz is, at best, down minus 20 dB anyway. So uh, a, a, a very, very slow roll-off filter will work in the recording process, although generally a very steep roll-off filter is used. Right. And incidentally, we hear a lot of bad things about filters. And when I designed and built my first uh, compact disc player years and years ago, the first thing I had to determine for myself uh, was whether a filter, a, a, a brick wall, as it were, filter at, at 22 kilohertz was audible and would hurt the sound. And what I found is that a properly designed brick wall filter will not harm the sound at all, and is in fact, when it's inserted into the signal path, is not detectable. Now, is this an analog filter or a digital filter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. I did it. I made an analog. Yeah, I made an analog filter uh, because it was easy to do. This was some 25 years ago. Sure. Um, And if you think for a moment, um, we have a brick wall filter in our own hearing mechanism, and it is steep. It is really steep, hmm. uh, and it begins for a young person at about 22 kilohertz anyway. Um, it's a, a well-designed filter is undetectable. Now, if it's a poorly designed filter and produces artifacts inside the audio band, yes, you can detect it. No, and you... um, Go ahead, Dr. Chile. So, uh, No, I just want to interject one thing. Noah, did you understand what he was talking about? We have a, a built-in brick wall filter. He's talking about the, our ears. Right, of course. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, Continue, go ahead, Bob. Bob. Good. And, Bob, please. And one more thing that's interesting. If you have a, a brick wall filter, and uh, suppose you apply a square wave to it, or a triangle wave, or anything like that, uh, and, insert, and insert such a filter, it'll immediately turn that square wave or triangle wave into a sine wave. And it turns out that if you pl- apply another one, another filter in cascade, and a third one in cascade with that, it doesn't change it one iota, except for the delay. But it, the, it, it still looks like the same exact sine wave, and it sounds the same. So cascaded filters uh, don't do anything. It's the first one that matters. So whether or not we can hear artifacts is somewhat subjective, right? Because we have a ver- we have various playback equipment. That, you know, a lot of people just aren't going to have the money for a playback equipment that would even produce the signal, interpret the signal. But then even above that, our hearing is so subjective. You know, our, what is our hearing peak around like eight years old or nine years old or something like that? And then our ability to hear higher higher frequency sounds just goes down and down and, and down after that. Um but if we look at a pulse wave on a scope, we can see pre and post echoes. Now, the post echo we can dismiss. That's not really relevant because 
post echoes occur in real life all the time. But pre echoes, the idea that you can hear an artifact of a signal before the signal has actually happened is that only exists in the digital realm, because in real life, we obviously we can't hear a sound before or any part of the sound before the sound itself has occurred. So I guess my point is, or my question rather, is the Nyquist theory holds water in theory, but my question is, can we can we accurate can we actually properly implement it with today's technology? I guess your answer is yes. Absolutely. Oh, we can. And even though it looks as if there's a signal somehow a pre-echo, yeah, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. That only exists on the face of an oscilloscope. Oh, okay. So, so obviously, something can occur before it happens. But, but yeah, before the impulse happens, there there's nothing coming out. Interesting. What, happens, what you see, what you see is a slight delay, and that's where you see the pre-echo. Then you see the main signal, and then a post-echo. But if you line, if you if you time align everything, that pre-echo begins at the same time the pulse arrives. Not after, not before, and not after. Um, and you can't hear it anyway. So the reason you can't hear it is for the reason I just said a minute ago, we have a filter in our hearing mechanism. Sure. And once you have a filter, you can cascade as many as you want and nothing changes. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Because the bottleneck is in our ears itself. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. So it, it, would it be your opinion then that 44.1 kilohertz at 16 bits is more than enough to accurately reproduce anything our hearers could, could ever, ever hear? That's correct. And it's not my opinion. It's an, it's a science. Fact. Yeah. And right. It's, and it's measurable. Yeah. Right. It's measurable. So you know, that, that's only on playback during, for the recording process mm-hmm. and for the recording process, it's much better to have some extra room. So 24 bits mm. better than 16. Um, and, and remember this, a 16 bit signal with dither looks perfect. Mm-hmm. It looks like a perfect sine wave. It looks analog as it can be. And the only thing you see that's not perfect is the noise. And the noise sounds like Gaussian noise. It sounds like a hiss. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a normal, actually sort of sounds, believe it or not, like, like tape hiss. Um, and, if it, and if you reduce the bit depth from 16 to 10 to 12 to 8, the sine wave stays perfect. The mm-hmm. signal to noise changes. The distortion stays low if it's dithered. That, that's a requirement. But only thing that changes is the noise floor goes up. It's as if you have a tape that's moving at a slow speed. So excuse my ignorance for a second. What what is the advantage of what is the advantage of, if if sixteen if if forty four point one kilohertz and sixteen bit depth is enough for playback? What's the advantage in recording? Is it just to catch all of the little artifacts that we can't hear, just to have them? No, no. It's because when a, when you're making a tape, uh, when you're making a recording, you you've got a mu- you have music playing and you have dials and you have headroom limitations that you have to pay attention to. Mm. And it's really a, it's really a pain to watch it that closely just to see that you're not overloading anything. Sure. Um, so that's that's why 24, 24 bits gives you a much larger overload range uh, that you can work with, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, when you're making a recording, you have to pay attention to this, the musicians the music, uh, the, the microphones. One thing you don't want to be paying attention to is whether you're overloading your recording. Your yeah, recorder, yeah so, sure. Or your tape. Like. So that's why, that's why it's nicer to have uh, 24-bit. You know, and that's probably... Recording. Would you agree with the, 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 the statement? I would assert that it's even twice as important when, when we're talking about digital recording because analog clipping, it, 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 it's kind of artistic almost. It, it almost has an artistic quality to it. Yeah. Digital clip, just right. there's nothing musical about it. <laughs> yes. That sounds terrible. And a, a good recording engineer will always, even if he's recording digitally, he'll have a nice analog limiter someplace on the system or a yeah. digital limiter that behaves as if it were an analog limiter. Yeah. We, uh, we record this show at at, at, at with uh, 10 dB of, of headroom just for that reason, just because I don't want any possibility of a digital clip ever, no matter what's going on. Uh, let me ask you this, Bob. Let me ask you this. And this is, I guess this is kind of a subjective question. If the answer is just you're, you're a fool, I, I'll accept that. But the first time I listened to DSD audio, one bit audio sampled at 2.8 megahertz. And I put my, I put headphones on a pair of uh, Barodynamics DT770s and I put it on and I, I'm telling you, it very clearly sounded 
sweeter, cleaner, crisper to me than 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 a, than a wave recording. Is that just is my is my mind just playing tricks on me? Is that what that is? You know, I couldn't say right now. I mean, heavens, I'm 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 two thousand miles away. Yeah. I don't know what happened. Sure, but it could be. But whenever that does happen, it behooves you as a scientist to find out why and what's going on. Right. And you can do a series of converging experiments. Do a series of converging experiments, the results of which will teach you uh, what, what actually has happened. Uh, but, oh, man, in audio, it is so easy to sit down in front of a pair of speakers or put on a pair of headphones and go, Wow, this blows away everything I heard before. Right. Uh, and often it's true enough, but there's always a reason. There's always a good reason. And it's, and what I like about good reasons that are uh, ferreted out is hmm. they never fly in the face of logic or science. <laughs> even though, even though it seems as if it is flying in the face of science and logic. Yeah, I mean, that's I, just the nature of our hobby. That, that's one thing that all three of us have in common is I think all of us accept that there are certain scientific principles that 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 stand true. And I'm not saying that Nyquist theory, theorem is wrong. I'm I, I have some specu I ha- had some speculations on on why why this might sound a little bit better. And I guess what I'm learning is that that those are incorrect. But so I, I guess my next question is when are you coming to Grand Forks and we're going to sit down and, and do an A/B comparison? We're going to figure this thing out. Oh, that would be fun. It's always fun to do those experiments. I did it a long time ago, but you know what? It needs to be done every 10 years, whether whether I need to do it or not. I agree. It's always fun to... Um, and so I'm coming to Grand Forks soon. I'm not sure when, but it won't be much... It won't be long. It'll be okay. probably right after the beginning of... And then we can do, the, we can do this on air, right? We're going to do this whole experiment on air? Oh, that would be a lot of fun. We can build a little circuit and then try it out and re- report the results. Go. Hey, and, Bob, you know, I, I have a couple of questions before I let you go. Bob, I have a yes. couple of questions for you. Number one, um, the first question is: Yes, I accept all your uh, accept uh, all your statements as face value, but I have a question for you. All those statements are predicated on the fact that all the systems are working as designed, correct? Uh, yes. So. I mean, is it possible that some of the sound we is it possible sometimes we don't hear the best sound because maybe all the systems are not working as designed Oh absolutely in other words the sound that uh, Noah heard maybe it was so well designed uh, the filters and everything so it was working as designed whereas the other other system that he heard maybe they weren't all properly tuned and properly uh, you know calibrated so maybe they weren't working perfectly of course and there's no way to tell from here all right well we thank look and see well thank you very much i look i think thank you very much for your time bob if people want to follow what you're doing what you're up to where can they go to my website sure. to my yeah. website yeah sure um, yeah bob cover uh or read reviews stuff like that no, Bob, what, old, which is I'm your old. website, Bob? No, I'm, I'm old. I've been around for a long time, and there's a lot of my work. Where do you direct people nowadays? Where Bob, Is it bobcarver.com? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, if you, just type in, if you just type in Bob Carver and Google it, I'll come up. All right. Well, sounds good. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming back on the, on the uh, Snow Show. We, we, we look forward to having you back on the program real soon. Oh, that'll be fun, and it'll be a fun experiment to do and to share with your listeners. All right, that's okay. Great. All right, great. Thanks for thanks for coming on. We'll have we'll we'll have Bob in studio. We're going to do this experiment because I still think I still think there's something to this DSD audio. I just I, I don't have the I don't have the the expertise like Bob does to to be able to tell you exactly no, what it is. Go ahead, Noah. Yeah. As I pointed out, it's quite possible that m- m- many of the systems that currently exist are. You know the the theory behind they're correct, but maybe right. they are not properly executed. Yeah, it not could be. It, you know, it's the same. It's the same system, though. I was just listening to you know the difference between a wave recording and a DSD file. Anyway, you know, here here's the thing. If you want, if you want to get in on this, what you need to do to listen to this audio on your computer, because you can't just plug in headphones to your your Apple Eye ears or whatever and listen to DSD files on your uh, you know your iPhone or whatever. You have to have a special device that converts the high resolution audio back into analog that your ear that that can then play to your headphones. 
And so, and so what you need is what we call a DAC, a DAC, a digital audio converter. Um, and uh, we've got my favorite one. It works on Linux natively. It's made by a company called Cambridge. I know, Dr. Chalai, you're familiar with them. It's yes. the DAC Magic 100, small little USB audio interface. Works great. Uh, and then you need a good set of cans or speakers to listen on. And so we have linked in the show notes a couple different options for you. Uh, I, uh, I've i been playing with the Barodynamics DT770 80-ohm headphones. Uh, if you've got a bit, bit of cash to burn, those are those are some decent headphones. But we'll also have some really inexpensive uh headphones they're made by monoprice the 8320s and i mean these things are an incredible buy they're easily they have the sound of 150 or 200 pair of headphones and monoprice is selling them for 16 bucks somehow and i mean you really really get a terrific bang for your buck if you buy these headphones so check them out we'll have them linked in the show notes both of those are available for you in the show notes as well as software you're going to need to play the DSD files, I've been using a program called Dead Beef. You know, on Linux, we come up with these crazy names. <laughs> it's available on the RGUR as well as we'll have a PPA for Ubuntu. Again, linked in the show notes for you. Phone lines, 855-450-NO, 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Jared joins us from New Mexico. Hey, Jared, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, how are you? Excellent. How can we help? So I wanted to ask a question about I guess the next 30 to 50 years, I'm planning on going back to college. Hmm. Um, I just don't know if system administrator is something I wanted to do as a full-time career. Um, mostly I see computers being able to repair themselves in a way that I don't know if, uh, if I spend the time now to go to school for this, if I'll regret it in the future. No. Um, and there's also other careers as InfoSec, um, other things like that. Go ahead and tell me your opinion, though. Yeah, uh, no, I don't think you're wasting your time at all. I think th- the thing that to remember anytime you want to go get education is you want to look at the return on your investment. So if you're going to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on an education, what are you getting for that? Because if if you get out of school fifty thousand dollars, you spent fifty thousand dollars to go to school, and then you get out of school and you go get a job for thirty five thousand dollars, that wasn't a real great investment, right? So what you want to look at, you want to have a plan right. laid out ahead of time. I'd also we always recommend that you pay cash for things as you go along. It, um, but w- when you go along and you start looking at companies and what company would you like to work for? Would you like to work for Google or would you like to work for Red Hat or would you like to start your own business or would you like to work for a small mom and pop shop? Figure that out first and then make your education path. So <clears throat> say, for example, you want to work at Red Hat. Pretty, pretty straightforward. You can go and ask them what kind of education requirements do you have? And they'll tell you, well, we want a four year degree. We want to see five years of, of work, relevant work experience. And we want to see a fleshed out GitHub page. Well, there you go. Um, you want to work for Google? Chances are you're going to need to intern there or work for another company or come out of college, you know, uh, with a lot of, um, you know, with, a, you know, with, with high marks. Uh, and, and so those kinds of things. One thing that we see in the, in the IT career or in the IT field is when I interview people to work for AltaSpeed, I rarely care about formal education. I met some really smart people that, uh, that don't have a high school education. And I have other people that have more degrees than a thermometer and they can't problem solve their way out of a paper bag. So formal education to me means seriously. Yeah. I mean, it means almost nothing. Some of the smartest people in the, in the world don't have a form, you know, don't have a formal education and that doesn't make them, that makes sometimes they're some of the best technicians. And so what we look at is two things. One is relevant work experience. Have they done what we're asking them to do in the past? Two is I can suss out pretty quick in an interview how that person is willing to take direction and a moldable person. It's much easier to redirect a thoroughbred running the right direction than it is to try to get a donkey to, 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 to run a, to run a race, if that makes any sense. And so, and you, I can suss that out in an interview pretty quick. Um, but the, the other thing I look for is certifications. If somebody comes in, they say they have a Red Hat certification, they're, cer- they're certified system administrator. Because I have taken the certified administrator test, I know that that means that that particular person can problem solve IT problems, the very kind of problems that we're going to have no problem. And if they come in and say, well, I'm, I'm, I have Cisco CCNA, well, I know they're really good at subnetting uh, because that's basically the entire test is subnetting. And so and I, and I take those credentials for what they're worth. So what I would recommend if you want to go down the path of system administrator, first, I would look at uh, maybe uh, taking some certification classes. And then the second thing I would do is look at uh, getting some relevant work experience. So go volunteer or uh, go help out as a as a junior system admin somewhere. And, uh, and that, that should get you started. Again, phone lines one eight five five four five zero noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow 
Com. So we are doing our bracket elimination challenge, and the bracket elimination challenge is basically where we are trying to pick the best Linux distro for a given job. Now, this week's results surprised me. We pitted Ubuntu against Fedora, and this week it is Fedora. Fedora winning at... 1,563 votes versus 1,185 votes. And uh, I was really shocked by this. I thought for sure Ubuntu was going to come out ahead to begin with. And so if you want to vote, uh, Fedora won this round. There's nothing we can do. They won fair and square. In fact, I was I was talking about perhaps uh, calling it a tie if it was real close. And, and and then the Fedora guys just pulled it ahead. And that's despite some some cheating from a certain someone that was posting in a, in an Ubuntu thread. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the, the the vote is is one, and Fedora won that round. And so Ubuntu will still be listed on the site, and there will still be a list of all the people uh, that the number of votes and why those people voted for those things. But unfortunately. For Fedora continues on. Ubuntu does not. Now, this week, because last week we got you all riled up, we're going to rile you up again with Arch Linux versus Debian. Arch Linux, the design of the approach of the development teams follows the key, the KISS, keep it simple, stupid, as a general guideline and focuses on elegance, code correctness, minimalism, simplicity, and expects the user to be willing to make some minor efforts to understand the system's operation. All that in English, it's a rolling Linux distro where everything is completely fresh and it's kind of a hodgepodge of every package that's available. You can just install it and have it available to you. And that's compared with Debian. The Debian project was first announced in 1993 by Ian Murdoch. Debian 0.01 was released on September 15th of 93, and the first stable release was made in 1996. Debian is probably one of the most popular Linux distros ever to grace us with its presence. There are still plenty of people that are using it, and it is the common base for multiple other distributions like Ubuntu. And elementary. And I mean, all of them I mean, elementary based off of Ubuntu, based off of Debian. So, I mean, a lot of things have their roots in Debian. So I expect this, whatever we got attention last week, I expect to get more attention next week. And you can vote on that. com slash elimination. Let us know what you think, which vote. Which operating system do you think is a better choice? And again, it doesn't have to be the one that you would personally use. It just has to be between those two, if those were, if you were on an island and those were your two choices, what would you choose? AskNoah.com slash elimination. Hey guys, can you help us make the Ask Noah show better? We would really appreciate it. If you are the kind of person that skips over episodes because they don't look interesting, do you like the in-depth explanations like we had this hour? Do you like the stuff that's slightly outside of Linux like we had this hour? I want you to be as harsh and mean as you want. Just be truthful. That's all I'm asking for is the truth. How can we serve you better? Should we have more guests? Should we have more calls? Should we do more video content? Should we focus Focus more on mobile content like notes and links and timestamps on your phone. Do you would you like a streaming app so you could stream the show live from your phone? What kind of things could we do to engage your listenership in the Ask Noah Show? We want to know. Head over to asknoahshow.com slash better to make the show better. Asknoahshow.com slash better. We would love to hear from you because you guys and, and, and this what I'm really looking for is the people who don't like the show. If you don't like the show, I would love to know why. And, and I, I would be so grateful if you could just take two minutes. We don't even ask for your name. There's literally one question on the form, and it is, what can we do to make the show better? com slash better. How can we make it better? And if you could give me just two minutes of your time and just tell me, what would it take for you to listen to the show? I would love to know. Dr. July, thanks so much for being here with me this hour. Oh, you are very welcome. Glad to join you, Noah. So I understand, you know, over the past year or so, two years or so, you've been working on a project that's finally coming to fruition, and you are doing a, a a weekly show now where you're talking about how people can improve their lives without traditional medicine. That is correct. So that that's that's pretty cool. So instead of having to take, and you're you're a, you're a medically trained physician, you have years, uh, thirty five years of invasive cardiac procedures, and you know when that's appropriate. But you also know that there's a time where people can just change their diet, change their lifestyle, and they can cure eighty five percent or more of their diseases. Chronic illnesses without pills, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's and that's that happens when tomorrow. Tomorrow, I do it every uh, my show every Wednesday uh, around six o'clock. But tomorrow I'm going to talk about this uh, opioid crisis that everybody's talking about, and I'm mm. going to take your questions tomorrow. Yeah, that's you're going to follow up on the symposium that uh, the radio station aired last week, right? That is correct. Oh, that's that's cool. correct. 
All right. Well, the, well, we'll have more information on that in the show notes as well. Thanks again for thanks again for joining me. I appreciate having you. Again, uh, the Ask Noah show continues next week. Uh, let's see here. We are on Tuesdays now. I keep I keep uh, I keep losing this stuff. Uh, but yeah, the Ask Noah show continues next Tuesday at six p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Vox Telsis for providing our phone system. We'll hand you off to the Harm Reduction Report coming up next on the all-new Independent Talk, KEQQ 88.3 FM in Grand Forks.